You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis, finally connecting for this episode with someone I've connected with on Twitter and email for a long time. Glad to finally uh, have a chance to talk with him on a podcast, Dan Shapley. He is the Water Quality Program Director at Hudson Riverkeeper. Dan, how's it going? It's great. Thanks, Travis. It's it's really great to be here. I'm, I'm glad we finally have the opportunity to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know you've been out on the river recently or even on the uh, what the Mohawk River kind of doing some sampling right. there. That's a, a, a big part of what you do all the time is getting out on the water and seeing what's going on, huh? Yeah, you know, it's integral to, uh, you know, all the keepers uh, around the country and the world to have a boat and to be intimately connected with the water. I think it's part of what makes the river keeper and the, all the keepers around, uh, you know, gives, gives us some of our power and our currency is to be able to kind of have that direct connection and be able to when we wherever we go, go up to the Capitol, go to uh, into the community center. Um, we, people kind of understand we're bringing that perspective. And so it's also a nice excuse as an employee, you know, you get to actually get your feet wet sometimes. And, and I love that about the job. Yeah, absolutely. I am frequently jealous of people like you and, and others that actually get to work outside on like a very regular basis, whereas I'm pretty much, you know, an office desk computer person uh, for, for the income. But uh, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely jealous. Um, Hudson, Hudson River. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious. It's kind of one of these iconic rivers in the country. Um, it's got an incredible history and, and what's happened in the Hudson has really had an impact in to a lot of waterways elsewhere. So, but just generally for folks that might not be familiar with the Hudson, could you describe it? Sure, happy to. Um, so, you know, if you go back before the Hudson River was the Hudson River, it was the Mahikinituk, the river that flows two ways. And that's because it's a tidal estuary for 150 miles. So it's a really unique kind of estuary in that it's not like, you know, Chesapeake Bay or something like this broad, flat, you know, expanse, but this kind of narrow, long estuary that reaches from New York City on up to Troy, New York would actually go another, uh, I don't know, 50 or so miles if there weren't for a federal dam there. So um, it's uh, it sloshes back with the tides of the Atlantic. And, um, you know, people know it by the New York City skyline. Uh, it's the foreground, right? If you're if you're in New Jersey, looking across the river, the water there, that that's the Hudson. And that's how most people know it. So every kind of every perception that comes from the river and every surprise about it is sort of born of that Mm -hmm. in intimate sort of 
connection and that familiarity. But people are often surprised to find out, you know, it is a tidal estuary. It's a nursery for all the Atlantic fish. It's a big part of what makes the Atlantic ecosystem tick with the sturgeon, the shad, the herring, striped bass, you know, are all spawning in, in the Hudson River. Um, it's a drinking water supply directly for 100,000 people upstream um, towards Poughkeepsie, which is about 75 miles north of New York City, um, Poughkeepsie, Rhinebeck, Hyde Park. Uh, we actually have helped to organ uh, get those communities organized as a single entity called the Hudson Seven because there's seven different municipalities that drink that rely on the Hudson for drinking water. Um, but also, you know, parts of the watershed are the water supply for New York City. Parts of the water supply, the Mohawk River, we were just, uh, you know, mentioning, that's a water supply for about 100,000 people as well. So a lot of people don't appreciate that these rivers that might have, you know, tremendously bad rec old reputations, might deserve them in some cases, are still tremendously, you know, just the lifeblood of our communities today as drinking water supplies. Um you know, other things to know about the Hudson is, you know, despite that uh, that amazing estuary, that, that kind of engine of life that it is for the Atlantic, we can't eat the fish because of PCB pollution from General Electric as the, the headline most important um, contaminant that still affects all of the Hudson uh, fish. It's a 200-mile-long Superfund site uh, from the source of um, the GE's pollution up in uh, a place called Hudson Falls in Fort Edward, which is north of the estuarine portion of the river and that the, the entire uh, ecosystem is contaminated so we um, can't safely eat the fish. Um, there are other contaminants at work as well but the PCBs kind of none, none of them matter because we haven't cleaned up the PCBs not that they don't matter but when it comes to you know the health of eating them. Um, commercial fishing you know we used to have a robust commercial fishing industry on the Hudson for many many years uh, decades, I should say, centuries even. But, um, you know, 1970s was the last you could fish for eels and striped bass. That's when the PCB contamination was discovered. Uh, sturgeon, shad, herring are relatively free of PCBs because of their life history, but they've been overfished and their habitat has been so decimated that we have uh, no fishing for sturgeon as of the mid-90s, no fishing for shad as of the late 2000s. So as of today, you can still catch blue crab. And um, actually, uh, some of the Hudson's blue crabs get shipped to the Chesapeake Bay and are sold as, you know, locally, local Chesapeake Bay uh -oh. crabs in some summers when they're abundant here and not so abundant there. Um, but, uh, but not a lot, you know, a uh, lot of uh, recreational fishing and there's some new restrictions on recreational striped bass fishing because they were being overfished. So we have this on, even the fish that have kind of held on and are, are um, still with us are still stressed in a lot of ways by, by fishing habitat loss and and pollution. Mm. Um, and the last thing to know is, again, that, you know, that kind of surprising thing that people don't always realize with that image of Manhattan is that the, the Hudson's really the people's beach, you know, all up and down the river. Uh, people are going to the water's edge. They are, there's only a, a couple of public official beaches, but everybody's in that water. Um, and, um, and so we advocate for cleaning up and improving water quality because we know the people are already in the water and yet more would be if, if they understood uh, just, you know, surprisingly how, how good it is most of the time. Yeah, so many interesting things to follow up on there. So that point where the contamination starts, that Hudson Falls area, that GE legacy PCB contamination, then there's still a good chunk of river north of that or, or rather upstream of that, that that you can fish and, and feel a little bit better about things? 
Yeah, that, that's a good point. So the whole river is about 315 miles long. It starts on Mount Marcy, New York City, State's uh, highest peak. Or, you know, of course, it starts from its watershed, right? But we call we call that that point, that little um, Lake Tier of the Clouds is its name, up on the mountain. And that's where the river starts. So its first hundred or so miles are free of the GE's um, contamination for PCBs. But all of the river downstream from there, and including this, you know, this estuarine portion that's such, you know, the the lifeblood of the, the ocean and, and um, the people's sort of connection with the river in large parts is, is contaminated. Okay. And, you know, one of the big ways we judge the health of rivers is, is it swimmable? Is it fishable, right? Like those two big mm -hmm. measures. Um, so then the swimming side, how is that for human health to be in there and, and swimming around? I mean, I'm sure it varies in different places along that 300 and something miles, but what's, what's, what do you say about that? Well, so we actually, um, the, the community science project that we started back in uh, really 2006, before my time and Rick got ramped up in 2008, was really designed to answer that question, because the state had kind of started um, advertising in, in a sense that the river was all, all better and, and had reached, you know, swimmable status, essentially. Um, but there wasn't really any data that proved that or one way or another. Um, and so we set out with um, some university scientists from Columbia University and Queens College to kind of start a monitoring program that would answer that question. And what we found is that um, about 80% of the samples we take, and we've taken 5,000 or so samples um, over the years, we sample monthly at 74 locations in the estuary, about 80% of those samples safe for swimming meet federal criteria. Um, but we still see persistent problems where we have combined sewer overflows, particularly in our capital district, um, and along some shorelines and in many of our tributaries. So those smaller creeks and rivers that feed into the Hudson often look much better. They have a better reputation. People have a, oftentimes a closer, you know, more intimate association with them, but they are often showing higher levels of uh, contamination because we're looking for indicators of, of sewage, essentially, which is what would make you, you know, put you acutely at risk of, of getting sick if you're, if you're swimming or jet skiing or anything like that. Yeah. And then do you guys, uh, I know swim guide is something out there that a lot of different river keepers, water keepers feed data into so people can check. Do you guys feed stuff into that too? Um, we have, uh, well, you caught me. I'm behind like by a couple of years getting <laughs> our data up into there, but you can find it at riverkeeper.org. Oh, cool. Um, so we, um, we put it all up in a similar fashion, but it's all local on our website. So all the Hudson River. Um, and then we built out, you know, especially finding that the tributaries and shorelines were particular areas of concern with community scientists. We've expanded that sampling with a lot of partners. So now, not in a pandemic year, but in a typical year, we'd be sampling about 400 locations with those partners and reporting out on the data each month. Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I think part of, uh, like I alluded to, part of uh, the Hudson's kind of uh, mystique or iconic nature is that the Riverkeeper movement kind of, it started with the Hudson. Uh, could, yeah. could you tell that story? Sure, yeah. It was back in the mid-60s and um, Bob Boyle was the founder and he is a uh, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, um, and he he was kind of he was so famously cantankerous <laughs> that he once called once up called up one of my colleagues who wrote famously cantankerous in a in a description of him and said, 
cantankerous. I'm not cantankerous. <laughs> but he he was perfect. You know, but he was a fighter. You know, and he and that was really built into the DNA of the keeper uh, movement. I think at that time, and there's some you know some evolution there and some different strategies we're using now. But going back to the '60s, it was a group of guys that got together in a room and and were fed up with the pollution that they saw in the Hudson, and this was before the modern Clean Water Act, right? You know, 1972 was that. So this is five, six, you know, years before that. And they um, found a law in the books um, from the 19th century that outlawed dumping in navigable waters, but hadn't really been used for that purpose. So they kind of uh, dusted it off and went after a polluter, uh, the Penn Central Railroad, that had a, a waste oil discharge pipe going right into the mouth of the Croton River, which is a tributary of the Hudson, um, and um, brought uh, brought a lawsuit. It took you know the backing of a local congressman and you know a community and you know because it was a novel a novel thing to do, but they succeeded, and they brought that pipe to uh, an end even before the you know the Clean Water Act started doing that more widely. And that came with um, the way that law was written is there was sort of almost a bounty associated with it. If you were successful in bringing a polluter to justice, then you won. In this case, I think it was $2,000. Hmm. So they took that money and applied it to the next polluter and the next and the next. And that way, it kind of played that role even before the, the Clean Water Act of starting to bring those egregious pipe discharges into, into, into a, a thing of history. Um, and still today, you know, on through, there's been a lot of evolution, but um, the legal, you know, using the law and using citizens' power t- under the law to bring polluters to justice and to understand process as much as, you know, suing people. We we just are out there understanding how does this regulation work? Where can people? get active and make a difference. And that kind of civics, I think, is is an underappreciated but really essential part of what we what we do. Uh, we also have a boat on the water, and that's a critical part of being a keeper, is you have a boat and you have that, like we were talking about, that intimate connection. Uh, I'm not the boat captain. You know, I do most of my work from the shoreline, <laughs> but, um, but I get to go out on it uh, now and again, which is always a treat. Um, and then the third part, you know, so the legal, uh, the boat, and then what I think of as the third leg of the stool we, ha- we, we hang on is the community, and particularly you know, community science, like I was telling you about, is a, is a big part of that community. Yeah, I want to dig into that in a little bit, but that's it's so cool how 50 plus years ago, it kind of started with this, this bounty structure, right? Where you're out there, you're looking for a source of pollution, you're going after that polluter, you're getting it cleaned up. And when I was recently talking to Nancy Stone, or with the Potomac Riverkeeper Network, she was talking, that's how she described riverkeepers. Like they're the eyes, the ears, they're out there, they're finding, they're really good at finding these these discharges, finding these pollution sources, tracking them down, going after it. So uh, yeah, you're like, you're like the positive pirates for the river in a way there. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned some of the challenges for the Hudson right now. You got the legacy PCB stuff, you've got CSOs. Um, what are other, the other kind of... the the primary challenges you all are, are wrestling with? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the big challenges comes with just being situated where we are. You know, New York City is at the mouth of our watershed, the biggest city in the country. Um, and with that comes not only, you know, the legacy of like combined sewer overflows and, you know, a city built on, you know, old infrastructure. Um, and it's not the only city in our watershed like that, but also just a, a tremendous energy demand, t- tremendous capitalistic, you know, spirit that is looking for every real estate opportunity in the watershed to do any 
horrible idea with, you know, <laughs> that, you, that you can throw money at. So I think there's just this constant um, churn of, of um, you know, really uh, things that could could further degrade uh, the river and water quality that we always have to be vigilant for. So it's this kind of watchdog rear guard action that's always necessary. But then on top of that, you have um, obviously climate change overarching everything. And like I said, it's a tidal estuary. So we've got sea level rise, in all the communities along the river as a concern, but also extreme precipitation um, coupled with, you know, extreme uh, nutrient overload in, in many places. So that's a, a recipe for harmful algal blooms, for disinfection byproducts, for other concerns. Um, all of the inland flooding that can come with that extreme precipitation is going to have impact away from the river, but in our communities and along our, our tributaries. So that's kind of another layer that's just sort of overarching and always there. Environmental justice, I think, is another one where, you know, particularly we've been one of the ways we've been um, focused on this is 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 drinking water source protection, mm. because in many uh, if not all cases where you have um, cities where you have more often your um, populations of people with less income and your um, more black and brown people are reliant on your on the reservoirs and rivers that are upstream and out of their jurisdiction. So they don't have any land use control. They don't have any real decision-making power over what's happening in the watersheds that's supplying their drinking water supplies. So I think that dynamic is a really uh, under underappreciated environmental justice issue that um, is one of one really an important um, aspect. But there's you know the impact of polluting facilities, access to to recreation, all of those things have an environmental justice component that I think is really important. Sure. Um, and then finally, you know, in addition to kind of the legacy pollutants and the legacy infrastructure, um, we've got pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, PFAS, you know, all of these new, new quote unquote, new contaminants, but this dramatic um, rise in, you know, since the 70s, particularly in our use and um, discharge of these trace chemicals in most cases, but the stew and the mix of those is um, out there in our river. I mean, we if you want, if you want to find something, it's in the Hudson River water, <laughs> basically, you know? Oh, <laughs> so, oh man. So, um, it's there's there's always uh, there's that novel stuff on the t on top of everything else. Sure. So a couple things. So you you know you're by New York City, right? You've got this megalopolis there. Uh, so I guess you continue to have the sprawl, right? And and the paved impervious surfaces that come with that, huh? The roads, the parking lots, the rooftops. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of our big concerns going forward in the next few years is that after 9-11, uh, we saw a huge wave of, of suburban sprawl as people fled New York City and were you know, fearful of it as, as a, a potential target again. Now we've got a pandemic and New York City was the epicenter for the, you know, the, the first of the the first wave of the first wave. Um, and so I think uh, in, there's every reason to think there's going to be another building boom or at least the pressure for it that's going to spread that, you know, have the potential to spread that sprawl again across wider areas of the watershed. Yeah. So it's, it's not only kind of, you know, the legacy um, pavement and the and the current pavement, but <laughs> the pavement to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So are you, uh, your watershed there, you're dealing with New York State, also Connecticut and Vermont? 
Yeah. Uh, you want to keep guessing? I can keep quizzing. Ah. <laughs> a little bit of a little bit of Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and uh, New Jersey, of course, both as where where it flows past, but also some of the watershed uh, flows flows up and out of New Jersey and and, and meets the Hudson further upstream. All right. So you have that fun challenge. Water doesn't have any boundaries, right? And I think a lot of rivers across the country, you've got to deal with different states, right? It's not just the different yeah. cities, but you've got to deal with all these different states and, and mm-hmm. you kind of try to find some common policy ground and everything. Fun fun times. Uh, you mentioned PFAS. What's going on with PFAS for you guys? This is one of the hottest issues in water, of course, and rightfully so. It's a big problem. So what's what are your guys' challenges there with the Hudson? Yeah, and I know it's affected your hometown. I've yeah. heard you talk about it quite a bit. Um, so the, the biggest way we're working on this is in a um, city of Newburgh, which is uh, about 70 miles north of New York City. It's on the Hudson River, and it's um, – uh, very much an environmental justice uh, situation uh, with uh, the water supply having been contaminated by not only um, over overwhelming sprawl, but also an Air National Guard base that used the firefighting foams that contain these chemicals. So the um, the pr- city's primary reservoir was, was identified uh, through some of the unregulated uh, contaminant monitoring back in 2016 as uh, being above, you know, if you remember at that time, sort of what what was considered safe, um, you know, quote unquote safe was was shifting by the, the day or the month. And so it became clear that the city's reservoir was contaminated with uh, the chemicals. And uh, so we've launched, we launched a, really a campaign uh, with the community uh, based in Newburgh for three things for Newburgh. One, a health response, to, uh, you know, uh, cleanup of the source, which we're, we're actively working on. I've got a letter I need to finalize after this. <laughs> and um, and, uh, and uh, finally, long-term protection of its watershed um, and, its, and its local reservoirs. It's fortunate that it can tap into New York City's supply because that aqueduct that, su- that supplies uh, New York City from one of its upstate reservoirs run, one runs right by Newburgh. So the tap water right now is clean, but they still don't, they need long-term protections of their drinking water supplies that are local, which would be much, much more affordable and it's just right to have your, you know, they've, they've thoughtfully built these reservoirs over a hundred plus years, they should be able to make use of them. Mm. Um, so that advocacy, um, you know, w- while being uh, still very Newberg focused, we've also tried to draw the, you know, the lessons out of Newburgh and say, what do we, what do we need to learn from this to make sure that we're protecting water generally? And in New York state, about half of the population enjoys New York city's drinking water supply one way or another, either because they're in the city or they draw a straw off the system along the way. Um, and that's the model, you know, worldwide for protecting water at its source. You know, you protect your forested hillsides, you protect your stream corridors, and you use the water, the natural filtration of the landscape as much as possible to make that water clean. But in New York, we didn't really ever apply that to our smaller cities throughout the state. So we've tried to jumpstart that source water protection uh, in the state. Uh, there's a new uh, drinking water source protection program, DWSP2, the state calls it, that is uh, going to be rolling out any day now, um, which will be um, uh, planning support primarily for communities around the state to start that work and to really get involved. There's also um, $200 million a year land conservation fund that was put in place to help 
those other, you know, other than New York City communities start to preserve more of the land around their reservoirs. And so we're, we've are we been doing that and um, and also really just re, re-examining all of the water sources. So it yeah. brought our attention to the Hudson River itself, which, you know, we'd known was a water source, but hadn't really brought the level of advocacy to to say, hey, we need to make sure that this as a water source is protected for that purpose. And yeah. that was part of bringing those communities together and kind of what led us to that. Sure. Um, on the PFAS, is it, is it uh, in, in the river itself at this point, or is it really local to that community? Well, the I mean, it, there has not been widespread testing in the river, okay. so I couldn't tell you. We were trying to work with a university partner a year ago, and he didn't get his funding, so we can we didn't do that study ourselves yet. I think there's every reason to think it is. You it, know, it's I everywhere, mean, there, there's, somewhere. There's thousands of the chemicals and different formulations. It's got to be. I'm sure you can find it. Um, the the source of the contamination for Newburgh's reservoirs is the Air National Guard base, and that the water is. Um, it's it's in 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 simple terms the groundwater is polluted there, but it makes its way to the surface waters, um, and there's a stream that leads right off the base and ultimately goes into the Hudson within a few miles. So yeah. the fish in that stream um, are contaminated. People are advised against eating those fish. What makes it out into the the Hudson proper and what the contamination levels are in the fish is still an unknown as of today. Yeah, um, a couple things you, you mentioned I want to dig into a little bit more here. Uh, and that's the the drinking water source protection program. Um, why is that something you're uh, glad to see happen? Uh, you know, it's a, is it, it's just a good model. Yeah, I think so. I think um, it is. You know, I mean, I'm a water advocate and a drinking water advocate. Right. I'd, I would like nothing more than to just say, don't build anything if it's in this line. You know. No, no. Right, right. <laughs> right. But in, but it's hard to win that battle. <laughs> so this is the the best thing we've got right now. I think is to start this planning effort in all of these cities around the state, and I think we're going to see um, a set of common issues continually come up. And we have something in our state called watershed rules and regulations, which is an old, another one of these old laws that that is the basis for New York City's protection programs. Um, for its reservoirs far outside of city limits. But again, one of these things that hasn't really been used and applied effectively elsewhere. So we want to reinvigorate that law, really get that working. And I think that starts with each community around the state starting the planning effort, hitting some amount of wall saying, well, we we can only do so much with planning. We need some tools. We need some kind of regulations to help us. And I think then this law will become, you know, there'll be a... um, enough of a political will behind really making uh, a more aggressive use of that law or its or its successor. We'll see. Yeah, interesting. Um, and then you touched on the monitoring. And I really, I really like to talk about community science and the role of community science in, in for an organization like like you and, and what that term means and, uh, and how it's useful. Yeah, I think I mean, there's a the cool thing about it is there's like a thousand ways it can be used and is used. And, you know, our, our version of it is we really focus on measuring bacteria because people are want to know if it's safe for swimming. So it's something that it's immediately understandable. If you're telling them the bacteria that indicates sewage is, is likely to be present is above this low line or below this line, safe or unsafe, it's tangible, it's understandable, and it's something people connect with on a real Real, um, real world level. So we start with that. 
And, um, and then where it goes from that is really uh, the fascinating thing. And I think the thing that we're still learning all the time, because once you engage people in that process, you learn, you start to learn from them, well, what are your issues there? So Newberg, uh, where we were talking about PFAS is a great example. Uh, back in 2014, we started to sample for uh, fecal indicator bacteria with a local watershed group in the in the streams that include the reservoir water, you know, the same watershed as the reservoir. Um, before that, Riverkeeper wasn't focused on Newburgh's drinking water supply; it just wasn't you know, on our radar. Uh, but we learned from them: hey, we've got you know big box store after big box store and housing development in our watershed. You know, we've got all this stormwater runoff. We're really concerned. Um, and so when the permit came up uh, for the Air National Guard base, we, we paid extra attention to it and said, wait, this, this, this isn't protective of the drinking water supply and started to advocate even before anyone, really, you know, we weren't quite smart enough to know that PFAS would be the chemical, but we could see the pathway, you know, we could see what the risk was. So we learned that from the community, mm-hmm. but it started with a project to just measure stream quality and really start to engage. And I, I think that's, that's where it's working uh, best is, is sort of that partnership of, of um, uh, bringing in some new capabilities in, in testing ca- capacity or whatever it may be, and really just starting to get to know a community well enough to know what, what they really need. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I always like to talk about success stories and positive projects, and you've hit, hit on some that are, but is there anything else you'd want to mention that's going on or has happened up in, in the Hudson that uh, is positive, is a success story, is something that others can emulate? Well, um, I'm not sure uh, how emulate how you could emulate it exactly, but I thought I would just mention at least you know because it's in the news. But the you know National Environmental Policy Act NEPA was born here essentially um, out of uh, a case called the Storm King case, which was uh, you know a, a, basically a proposal to build a power plant carved into a, a scenic you know mountain along the Hudson River. And um, the the challenge to that um, brought about the idea that citizens could challenge based on environmental grounds uh, proposed projects. So it kind of ultimately gave citizens a lot of the rights that we now use over and over again. And of course, that law is under attack um, as of you know the minute by the Trump administration. Um, so that's um, you know I, I guess it, it's a success story going dating back, but it's also you know a sign that these things always are it's it, it's never done. You know you have to kind of keep fighting for these things over and over again. Um, another you know it just is similarly out of that history. You know at the time and and forevermore it's been called a great success, the Storm King case, but for the river it really wasn't a success because it it kind of um, Part of the agreement, it was called the Grand Bargain on the Hudson um, in the New York Times at the time. But the bargain part was that the power plants that were um, sucking in fish using once cool, once through cooling, could continue to do that for essentially another generation. So we lost billions and billions of fish in the intervening years. Um, but ha- have or will by um, by uh, within the next couple of months have finally shut down the uh, Indian Point nuclear reactor, which is the big most egregious violator of um, of the the ecosystem from that perspective, and also um, a real community risk 
because it's situated in a place that if uh, if ever there were an accident, the evacuation would really be impossible. Oof. Yeah, I remember when I was at EPA uh, during the Obama administration that we worked on rules on that cooling intake and, and working yeah. to reduce the amount of fish larvae and all kinds of other you know invertebrates and stuff that get sucked up yeah. and just, just ruin the ecological web there. Um, mm-hmm. Well, Dan, I am glad, like I said, that we finally connected. Awesome stuff. Um, um, and I, you know, I hope to to see you up there on the Hudson one day and, and get out and see some of this stuff for sure. Oh, please. Anytime travel is again happening right? and you're here, uh, <laughs> please uh, get in touch. We'll take you out for sure. Uh, that would be wonderful. Yeah, man. I can't wait for those days when we can travel again and get out and see places and hang out with people without any yeah. you know, precautions. <laughs> Good deal. Yeah. Well, th- thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you, Travis. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop.